You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Earlier in the service, when Helen read, she read the song of Zechariah that he sang when his son John was born and his tongue was loosed from his punishment of not being able to talk for nine months, a punishment my wife is still praying God would give me one of these days. I was uh, talking to uh, Chris Green, as I normally do, and he said, I'm beginning to think that Zachariah got something right because God allowed him to stop talking, which is a dream of mine, Chris said. I said, honestly, I'd rather be aching and die by fire than be able to not talk for nine months. He was like, yeah, it was, a, it was a mild punishment. No, it wasn't, Chris. It's the worst punishment in the entire Bible. Chris, if you're watching, you're weird. That's the worst. You preach for a living. Anyway. John's father explodes in song after his wife was told she'll never be able to have children, and then she has a child, and the one who said that she was going to get pregnant was the angel Gabriel. He bursts into song, and he sings this beautiful Advent song over his son, and then his son grows to become somebody who eats bugs and lives in the wilderness and says things that will one day get him killed. A long time ago, and if you've been at this church, I think you have to have been here for at least 18 to 20 years to know this person, but somebody by the name of Keith Dudley used to come here way back in the day, and he would sing and he would preach. He was affiliated with one of our overseers, Randall Worley, and I'll never forget, I was probably only here a year or two, and Keith said... He said, I I often think about what it was like when Zachariah was watching his son John in the wilderness baptize people, knowing this miracle of a boy that is now doing the work of the Lord, and Zechariah watches proudly as John baptizes people in the Jordan. And then somebody comes up to John and uh, Zechariah and says to him, you know, sir, you need to tell your son to stop saying what he's saying, because one day... They're going to kill him. And Keith Dudley said, I'll just never forget this. It gives me chills. It was just such good storytelling. He said, I could picture Zechariah at this point, probably near death himself. Stand up, look at that man and say, they might kill my son. But see that man he's baptizing right now? They'll never be able to kill him. That's Advent. That is Advent. It's this hope as it says in Romans, that goes beyond hope. Everyone can hope. Christians, we have to have a hope that goes beyond hope. A hope that goes beyond the hope we're capable of mustering ourselves. We need the kind of hope that is a gift from God only, not something that we've contrived on our own. And as everybody's been saying today, through text messages, through song, through word, whatever it is, the Holy Spirit, we have to be open to the living water that is the Holy Spirit to receive that kind of hope. We cannot come up with it. Whatever hope we can come up with is what we need to offer so God can give us real hope. So he can give us real hope. Because when we finally get the thing we're waiting for, we have to be able to let go of it like Zechariah did. We can't hope for something so hard and to the point where when we get it, we've hoped the wrong way. And so now we need to make it what we always wanted it to be. 
We have to hope in a way that allows God to birth things into our life and then those things belong to him and they can take whatever shape, tenor, or tone that he wants them to take. I'm guessing uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth want it more for John than to wear a leather belt, be in the wilderness, eat bugs, and get martyred. But never did they interfere. They let the Holy Spirit work in his life and to the point where God himself would say of John, no one was ever born greater. So it's not just about getting what we want, it's about being prepared and being changed and transformed and healed so that when God delivers things into our life, he can then deliver those same things through our life. That they won't get lost in our own possession, that they won't get lost in our own grip, that they won't get lost in our own control, but that he would deliver them to us so they can be delivered through us, like Mary, like John, like Elizabeth. Hope, as we said last week, is a double-edged sword. Hope is life-giving. Hope is, a lack of hope is the reason why some people have a hard time getting up in the morning. Having hope is one of the reasons why people can spring out of bed in a world like the one that we're living in right now. But hope can be a very positive force, but as we said last week, hope also means that you cannot be satisfied with what is. If you're satisfied with what is, then you don't have any need for hope, and you're saying, the way things are, the way I am, the way my family is, the way the world is, this is the best God can do. And I know looking at me, you're like, that definitely is the best God can do. He's just about perfect. But with everything else, it's like, no, there, there's more than this. Waiting, what are we waiting for? You ready? We're waiting for everything that was ever created to finally be able to be exactly its true self. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for everything that was ever created by God or by man through God to finally and fully be able to become its true self, its full self, what it was always meant to be. And we wait for that through darkness, through darkness evil through the powers of the heavens still wreaking havoc over the powers of the earth. We, we, we clap for him, but Julian read the name of, of all of these people that were, that were listed, and people have said to me over the last year and a half, they've said, you know what, the gospel is not political. You, you got to take Luke chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 out of your Bible then to make that true. Because Luke doesn't announce Jesus before he announces every corrupt political leader of the day and then the corrupt uh, religious leaders of the day. Because he wants you to know that Jesus comes through brokenness, that brokenness and corruption cannot stop the gospel from coming. And so as believers in that, we need to be people who can speak a more hopeful word than the word we're hearing, especially from a lot of churches. On the liberal left and the conservative right, churches are getting this absolutely wrong. They're either celebrating power that's evil or deconstructing everything so nothing has meaning. We have to do better. Look beyond the hills of corrupt politics because our help comes from an entirely different place. He comes through those corrupt political leaders. Look at them long enough. Jesus is going to show up. He comes through the wilderness, the dry places, the times in your life, the seasons in your life where no matter how much water you pour on the ground, it's not working. And so much sun that it's not, it, it burns things. That season in your life where you take two steps and you're exhausted because it's so unbearable. He, he says, go into the wilderness 
and prepare the way of the Lord. He comes through that dry, arid reality. What else? He comes through a barn, not an inn. Oh, if you go to the inn, you're not going to find him. If you go to the cold, nasty barn, there he will be. He comes through a cross. He comes through a tomb. Ask Paul, he comes through a shipwreck. Ask Daniel, he comes through a lion's den. Ask David, he comes in the valley in, in the face of a giant. Ask Moses, he comes through water that needs to part, otherwise we'll be slaughtered. On and on the story goes. Jesus does not come from the beautifully well-lit places we all wish he would. He comes from the places we're all spending most of our life trying to hide from ourselves and from everybody else. And there he is in those places. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, look, God is in the manger, and look, God is on the cross. He comes through places that he has no earthly business being in if we wrote the gospel. It's amazing that in Luke, he is wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger, only later in Luke to be wrapped in a shroud and placed in a tomb. And in both places, he touched those places to bless those places and to not stay there very long. And he wants to do the same thing in your life. He wants you to be aware of the barns and the wildernesses and the corruption and the crosses and the tombs of your life because there is where you will find him. That is where he will be, and he will wait there long enough for you to finally open that door and say, I have not wanted to go in here in a very long time, but there he is. He's there. What does he say? Straighten up. When you see these things happening, and the church seems to be so good at predicting the return of Jesus, they've never gotten it right once. Stop listening to them. Every time somebody's like, I think this is his return, just be like, everybody who's ever said that has never been right. Or don't say anything to them. Don't be better than me. Just say, cool. I better get home and straighten up. God doesn't want us to be optimistic. I know you roll your eyes when we say things like this, but seriously, he doesn't want us to be optimistic. Optimism says there's a lot of good and a lot of bad. I'm going to ignore the bad and I'm going to stare at the good. That's what optimism says. Optimism's like there's things that are not great, but I'm going to be one of those people. I'm going to, I'm going to jump into the power of positive thinking and I'm going to just focus on the good. And, and inevitably that leads to becoming cynical, pessimistic, and negative every time. Because lying doesn't ever get you to joy. Hope says there are good things and there are bad things and we need something better than both and Jesus provides that. Hope says there is good and there's bad and none of it is as it should be. The bad isn't as it should be and the good isn't as it should be. We need Jesus to come and lay his hands on the bad as much as we do on the good because he needs to resurrect all of it because honestly, the good isn't good enough yet. The good that we see in the world is not as good as God wants it to be. He wants even more for that. That's why he tells us we can't even, we haven't even imagined, nor has it come into our mind what he has prepared for us. Only children can imagine these things. We get too adult to imagine them. But even the good, the thing that trips us up the most is the good because we get satisfied with it. And God needs to resurrect that good as much as the negative. God prepares us for our true self as we await his return. He prepares, it says in Romans that his kindness 
and his patience are meant to lead to repentance. Do you want to know why time exists? The reason why time exists, you're looking at the clock right now, it's 10.57 a.m. In an hour and a half when I'm still preaching, you're all going to be very cognizant of the time. But here's why time exists. Time exists because time is the fruit of God's patience. Time is God's patience. If God wasn't patient, there would be no time. It'd be gone and he would do everything that deserved to be done right now. But God is going to wait it out. And that is where time exists. Time exists because God is waiting for us to turn to him. He's waiting for us to help the world to turn to him. He's flowing through us to gently nudge and menace the world into turning to him. And he's patient and therefore he's giving us time. That's why in all of these texts, you're hearing phrases like the refiner's fire, the fuller's soap, baptism, repent. Malachi is saying when he comes, he's coming like a refining fire. He's coming like soap. John is saying, here's how you wait for him. Get baptized, jump into the tank, jump into the water, get cleansed, repent from your sins. Why? Because waiting is not about getting the thing. It's about taking on the shape of the thing God wants to fit into your life. It's about becoming the shape of what we're waiting for, which is why, and we're about to see in a minute in a very humorous way, and some of you will be mad at me, but I'm used to it, so it's perfectly fine. But some of us are in the shape of the thing we're waiting for, and it's not Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't fit. The thing we're waiting for, we need to prepare for, and we prepare by going through refining fire, by being cleansed by God's spiritual soap, by being reshaped and transformed. We're not the ones who are finally right, saints. We are the ones who know we need to be reshaped better than anybody should. We shouldn't be walking around acting like we're the ones who got it right. We should be walking around acting like we are the ones from the island of misfit toys on the train with the square wheels. And God needs to round them out a little bit, so I stop clanging around. I have felt like the train with square wheels for three months now, but glory to God, it's been a while since I've been up here. I like this view better than I like sitting down there. It's so embarrassing to see the Goulds clap for me. Like, your miracle is so much better. Like, he, he leaps over tall buildings in a single bound and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure when things go wrong, he goes into a phone booth and puts on a cape. I'm just saying. He hasn't told me, but I've seen the movies. I've seen some of the movies. Rob, wherever you are, I'm sorry I haven't seen all of them. All right, ADD is now taking over. John, in our English translation of the Bible, it says, a voice is crying in the, prepare the way of the, but that is not how it reads in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it reads, a voice is crying and saying, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. There's a subtle difference there. Our English translation says, in a voice crying in the wilderness, which makes you think that the voice is in the wilderness, and that's where it's crying from. But in the Hebrew, it says, a voice of one saying, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Meaning, leave here and go to the wilderness, because that's where you'll be prepared. Go to the dry places. Go to your area in life where you need healing, and there God will prepare you for his return. Go to the places that are malformed. Go. We, we, we cannot feel shameful or guilty about the sin in our life. That is where we're going to meet him. 
He's there waiting with a bucket of water, with bread, with blood, with a cross, with an empty tomb, with a Holy Spirit waiting for us to show up and say, I'm finally here in the wilderness that I've been hiding from. And then fuller soap, refining fire, repentance and cleansing happens there. The more we hide from our sin, the more we hide from Jesus. And Jesus, like me, when, we, when, when me and Sophia play hide and go seek, I say, go hide, and then I watch the game. <laughs> and she thinks she's won and is really good at it, so it's a win-win. I'm encouraging her. <laughs> you know how bad it is that all this is on the internet forever? Like, I really need to stop. She doesn't stay hidden for very long, and she lets you know that you didn't come find her and makes you feel bad about it. So, yes. But Jesus, when we hide from him, he does the same thing. He's like, I'm trying to find you. Oh, you're hiding? Okay. And he watches the Giants. And that's his favorite team. (laughs) And anybody who enjoys the Giants is living the Christian life. It hurts. Very bad. But you know that your pastor is faithful. I'm a Mets fan. You know that I'm faithful. Can I get a witness? I'm a Knicks fan. What happened? You know that I'm faithful. I'm a Giants fan. You know that I am faithful. Steadfast. There's no shadow of turning. We are called to know that things need to be healed. We need to be the prepared way. Stephanie was singing, he made a way. And in the middle of it, I wanted to hear some enthusiasm whenever we hear that God is going to make a way. And here's why I want to hear enthusiasm when we sing that song. Not just because I'm excited that you're excited that God's going to bring you through your situation, but really because the more we know that he makes a way where there is no way, we also know that we can become the way where there is no way for somebody else. Your life is to be the way that people see Jesus. Your home is to be a home where Jesus is so broken in and comfortable there that when people come in, they're in a cultivated atmosphere for the Holy Spirit. How many have that home? I'm not going to trick you. I was going to make you amen that and then tell you you shouldn't have, but I'm going to do something far worse in a minute. So we won't trick you today. Our homes should be homes that are broken in. Homes that it's just fairly obvious that Jesus is here. And what does that mean? Organized home with pristine dishes and cups that are perfectly decorated and exquisite food. Yes, that's what it means. I'm just kidding. It means a home where righteousness can exist and find a place and repentance is also freely offered and forgiveness is right behind it. A home where the people in it are honest that they don't have it together, but they're okay with it because we know God's still working with us. We know that Jesus hasn't given up on us yet. A home where we accidentally yell at our kids in front of company, and company looks at us like, don't you go to church? And yeah, now you know why. I need help. A home that is broken, and I've been into many of your homes. They are to be ways. No one's looking for the pristine home, and no one is looking for people who have trashy language and don't live right. They're looking for homes where people are trying to live right. No, we can't, but no God is greater. Honest homes, real places that aren't always put together, but even when they're falling apart, the foundation isn't cracking. Amen? That's what they're looking for. And we are to be that. But in order to be that, we need to know that we need to be healed. So our title is Breaking News. 
that is, is Christmas hope, news for news, that is breaking things. There's breaking news that is shattering hope, making us cynical. Every time you turn on the TV, you've got a drone covering some negative thing. The broken news being said in the world is this, and this doesn't sound broken because the devil is a liar and he's good at lying. Here is broken news summed up in one sentence. Be yourself or change yourself. Everything we watch, everything we hear is either telling us to be exactly who we are, which, if you're not honest, you could act like that's a good thing. But if you're like me, I know that if I decide right now to always be the way I am right now, always just be the self that I am right now, I'm not going to grow anymore. And there are things in my life that still need repair, and I'm going to ignore that. And I'm going to walk around with this self-righteous positivity that says, I'm just being myself, which is an excuse to be a jerk to people and to never change in the name of freedom. But change yourself is also news that breaks things, because who has ever been successful at doing that? You can't. If we could change ourselves, no one would ever have to write one of those bad books. There wouldn't need to be 10 steps to anything. There wouldn't need to be one step. It would just be change yourself. What is the gospel-breaking news that heals that broken news? It's God saying, I don't want you to be yourself that you are right now, and I don't want you to change the self that you are right now, I'm coming to heal the self that you are right now. I don't want you to stay the way you are. What did C.S. Lewis say? C.S. Lewis said, God loves us so much to accept us as we are, but he loves us far too much to let us remain that way. I don't want you to try to change yourself, and I don't want you to think this is the self I'm always going to be, and there's nothing I can do about it. He's coming to heal. And our healing, as we heal, as we repent, as we receive God into our life slowly throughout the course of our earthly life, as we receive these things and as we heal, that healing is the path that leads to Jesus for other people to see. As we begin to make a clearing in the brush of our sin and people can see a path, the path is not just our righteousness or our right living or the positive stands that we take. It's also the proof that we were once broken and now we're being healed. That's what people need to see. They need to know that we get it, that we understand, that we mess up too, but God. That's what they need. The great Living theologian himself, Dr. Chris Green, said this. Speaking of grace, throw that picture. There he is. One day I'll look like you when I grow up, Chris. Probably not, though. He says this of grace. We encounter a reality we know we did not create and cannot control. A reality that does no violence to us, but menaces us with the call to change. This is the effect of grace's pressure on our lives, a pressure, a menacing that is always nudging or jolting us toward atonement. Grace is something that exists in your life whether you like it or not, and it is always nudging you if you're getting it right or jolting you if you're getting it wrong, and it's moving you and creating a yearning in you, not just for a better world to live in, but for the real me that's buried under all this sin to finally be able to come out. 
One of the things that Jacqueline and I believe is that we haven't fully introduced ourselves to each other yet because as God heals us, more of our true self comes out over time and more often than not, we say to each other, oh, there you are. There's a new side of you that I'm being introduced to as God cleanses, as God heals, as God pulls up from the rubble of our sin, our, our, our truest self. So grace nudges you and annoys you and menaces you and doesn't let you off the hook. Why? Because it's trying to bring you up and your true self, the self that you really know you are deep down, that you can't quite seem to be, grace is helping you get there. And that true self is in the shape of Jesus. It can receive Christ and it can live Christ before our neighbors in the world. It is the shape of a cross. So healthy waiting, healthy waiting is waiting not just to get something like we're about to find out from a Christmas song that I love that I'm also going to critique the living heck out of in a moment. Oh, come on. Whether or not you find this funny, I'm about to have a ball, and I don't care. So this is going to be What did Adam Sandler say? I have the microphone, and you don't. So healthy waiting is waiting that says, while I don't have what it is I'm looking for in life, I'm going to not just sit and wait and have the goal be getting. I want the goal to be transformation. I want the goal to be a new me. I don't want to be the me that I am now while I wait for the thing that I want. Because when that thing comes, I'll tell you this right now. This job is something I wanted. And God needed to shape me for a very long time. Because like Zachariah, I had no idea that I'd be eating locusts and wild honey. And, and going to the wilderness on purpose. <laughs> to get away from it all sometimes. You think your dream job, you think all this stuff, you want that family, you want that marriage, you want that job, you want those kids, you want all these things. We want Jesus, yes, we even want Jesus, but what does Malachi say? Woe to those who are waiting for the day of the Lord because it is not what you think it is right now. You need to be reshaped to be able to receive what you want. So healthy waiting is waiting that says between now and when I get the thing you promised, Make me the shape to receive it well. So, so, every year I try to destroy a Christmas carol for everybody. This is the most asked for song on the radio right now. And I want everybody to know, I love, I love the one who sings this song. I loved when she came out with Music Box in 1993. And then a hero comes along with the strength to carry on. Can I get a witness from somebody? One sweet day, ring any bells from the 90s for anybody. Boys to men can sing. Now they're men to old men, but they can still sing. Butterfly. Come on, these are good songs. And she came out with one very good Christmas carol, but it begs a little critique. Ian? Everyone listen carefully and stop laughing. Yes, you do. There is just one thing I need. It's a big ask, though. I don't care about the present. You should. Underneath the Christmas tree, I just want you for my own. Controlling. More than you could ever know. Yes, we do, because you sing every year about it. Make my wish come true. She can sing, though. No one should have ever tried to do that just now. All right, we're not going to play the rest of it. 
because it's not a happy sermon. You don't want a lot, do you, Mariah? Unhealthy waiting. We need to look at this. We need to be honest. There's a reason why this is one of the most popular Christmas songs of all time, because it satisfies everything in the way we think apart from the Holy Spirit. I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. You see, for starters, when you want something so bad and that thing becomes your whole life, you can't appreciate what other people bought you. Oh, don't do this. Every one of you are going to send me some kind of text message of you listening to the song later today, heathens. But let's be honest, right? Jesus didn't write this song. Mariah did. So many things. The first symptom of unhealthy waiting is falling asleep to value. I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. Well, you did your whole life until there was something that you wanted that you can't have, that isn't yours right now. And now when other people get you things, when you look at the blessings that you do have in your life, when you look at the things that you're not waiting for that actually are, you devalue them now because none of it matters. I can never be satisfied with anything until I get that one thing. So now she's saying, I only want one thing for Christmas. She wants everything for Christmas. It's just that the everything she wants is wrapped up into one person. And I don't think in 94 she meant Nick Cannon. I just don't. (laughs) Who was 14 at the time that this was written. Are we good, Betty? I know this is going to be a tough one. But we we like that we're children of the 90s. I have have equity in this one. I named three of her albums on purpose so that you didn't get mad at me later. Just so you know. The second thing that she says here is I want you for my own. Sadly... We do this with a lot of things, because when there's something we want so bad, eventually a fear develops of not being able to have it, and then when, you're, when your hope for a thing becomes the fear of never having it, when you do have it, you choke it to death. It starts by wanting something, it moves to being afraid that you'll never get it, and then if you do, while you're afraid you won't, you will want it all for your own, it will never be shared, and sadly, we've done this in the Protestant church with Jesus. He's been our personal Lord and Savior, and we've yet to share his mercy and grace with the wider world around us. We come and we go. We are busy with our to-do list, and really ask yourself, and I'm putting myself on the chopping block here too, how many people recently have we really talked to about the Lord? Or is it true that we really just want him all for our own? I'm satisfied with my ticket to heaven, and if I get the chance, and if it works out perfectly, and if everything is nice, nice, maybe I'll start to talk to people about God, and I'll start to share Jesus a little bit, or I'll start to share my dining room, or my time, or my money. And when we look at the fact that we really don't do those things as much as we should, we're singing with Mariah, but only we're singing it about Jesus. I want you all for me. I literally, somebody I used to go to church with, posted on Facebook during 2020, Uh, There's so many people who are going to hell when this is over. I'm just glad that while they're burning, I will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That person who I love dearly has become dangerous in their thinking. Dangerous. Because that is a very possessive attitude to have. And if they're doing that with Jesus, you can guarantee they're doing it with most other things in their life. So, Mariah, we love you, but the second thing about waiting in an unhealthy way is falling asleep to communion. Remember what we said last week. Help us remember that our lives depend upon each other's toil. 
that we need to share what we have. Our lives are meant to be shared. Our lives are meant to be brought into public, and the good is meant to be shared, and the bad is meant to be bore with each other. We're meant to get under each other's burdens and to, and to share each other's blessings. We're not meant just to live life all to our own. Honestly, some of us, very dangerously, we, we also, like Bogar, our problems. We don't, it's not that we don't share our blessings. Sometimes, and, and this is a truth right now, I'm saying this as your pastor, some of you don't share what you're going through, which is more dangerous. That's like drowning and never yelling for help. That's like being in a burning building and getting more comfortable in your bed. So we need to share. If we are just waiting for Jesus or waiting for that next thing in life, but our waiting isn't transforming us, we end up falling asleep to value. Things are nice, but they, I'll enjoy them more when I have this thing. That is a very dangerous place to be. Or falling asleep to communion that my life matters to your life even if six months go by and you don't see me, which is real these days. My life still matters to your life, and your life matters to mine, whether we like it or not. We can't have what we want all for our own. We have it together. Amen? Oh, we just got started with this one. Ian, dare we? Yes, you will. Whoa. <laughs> Okay, liar. All right, so couple, a couple things to discuss here. Waiting in an unhealthy way, we fall asleep to value, we fall asleep to communion, and we also fall asleep to beauty. And here's why. What does she say? Where's she going to be waiting for this gift? Where's she going to be waiting? Underneath the... Isn't that nice? This is what we said before. While she's waiting underneath the mistletoe, Jesus is walking out of a tomb. He doesn't go to those places. And this is real, this is what we call idealism. Because you're gonna, I'm not gonna talk about it in the next one because we're gonna play one more. But one of the things she says is all the lights are shining so brightly everywhere, and the sound of children's laughter fills the air, and everyone is singing. I hear those sleigh bells ringing. Santa, won't you bring me what I really need? See, you, we can fall asleep to beauty. We can hear healthy children. We can hear the church bells. We can hear the Christmas carols. The whole world around us can be singing, and we will be waiting under the naivete of our own idealism, waiting for something good to happen, and not realizing it's happening everywhere around us. And by the time we get what we've been waiting for, we will realize how much we missed. This is truth, Salem. We will waste so much time waiting for one thing if we're not looking to be transformed while we're waiting that by the time we finally get the thing that we've been waiting for, we look back and realize how much we missed. Kids are grown. We were home together. We were healthy. Things were going right. Things were going well. And all we did was cynical and argue and get nasty because really we're dissatisfied because we're waiting for this thing. We're standing under the mistletoe and Jesus is out in the wilderness saying, I'm waiting for you. We need to do better than this. You can look at me like that all you want. What's, what's the Randall? Don't look at me in that tone of voice. Yeah. I love this song. If I didn't love this song, I wouldn't be playing it right now. I don't. Yes, I do love this song. It comes on enough. 
What did, so- oh, what did Sophia sing this morning? She sang, she was singing this song because I was telling Jacqueline about it. I was annoying Jacqueline with my sermon this morning. And she's like, can, can I be surprised, please? And I'm like, no, you're going to hear it 56 times before I leave. Sophia starts singing, I don't want you for my own more than you could ever know. She got it exactly right. She got it exactly right. I, I don't want Jesus for my very own. I want Jesus in my life for you. <clears throat> Salem, we used to have a thing. Don't let COVID win. Enjoy this. I could say this other ways that would be far me. I love you anyway. All right, Ian, play the last one. You can't see them, though. How do you even know? Her lie is coming right now. Watch. Right here. (laughs) Let me quote what she said previously in the song. She says, I won't make a list and send it to the North Pole for St. Nick. And I won't even stay awake to hear those magical reindeer click. Then at the end... She's writing a letter to Santa saying, bring me the one I really need. Now, first of all, if you're Santa, you're like, that hurts. Santa, yes. Can you please bring me what I really need? Ouch. We say this to our family. We say this to our spouses. We say this to our children. Children, I'm so happy you're here, but can you please bring me the fulfillment I'm actually craving? Job, I'm so happy you're here, but can you please make me feel as happy as I was hoping you'd make me feel? Jesus... I know you're in my life and I'm so grateful I'm going to heaven, but can you please bring me the blessings that I've been asking for? She's singing it in a funny way, but this is how we pray. This is how we live, Salem. This is how we live our life. We treat Jesus like she's treating Santa. We say, I'll never, I'm never even going to ask you for these things, but now I am because I'm getting so disillusioned. Jesus, can you please bring me the one I really need? I need you, Jesus, until you give me what I really need, and then I'll just want you, but I won't need you. I won't be desperate like I used to be when I first met you. I won't thirst for you in the morning. I'll be so intent on getting to work on time that I'll be late to spend time with you in the morning because you gave me the job I prayed for, and now that job is keeping me from talking to you the way that I did before I had the job. Santa, bring me what I really need. Think through your life. Think of how simple God wants. He wants you to talk to him in the morning. He wants you to talk to him before you go to bed. He wants five minutes of your time in the middle of the day. We wanted his generosity. And now that we have it, we needed his generosity. And now that we have it, we'll be generous when it works out. We wanted the house. And now that we have it, now we're super busy renovating it. Now we're super busy. Like you gave us these jobs. Now you have no idea how busy I am. I watched you online today, Pastor, because it was just a really long week. Look, you were at the altar begging God for those things. I remember I laid hands on you and said, God is saying he wants to give this to you. Have hope. And now that you have it, I haven't seen you. I see you once every four weeks. Because the thing you got is now making you too busy for the one who gave it to you. Because you're like Mariah Carey. You're asking Santa to bring you the one that you really needed. Jesus, I need you until I get what I really needed, and now I want you. I want you. But when push comes to shove, 
I'm going to give myself to the things I really need. I'll be on time for the things I really need. I'll push off until tomorrow the things that I just want. Hmm. So enjoy that song now for the rest of this Yuletide season. I'm not going to put the author's name up as we bring this to a close for the next 35 minutes. I'm not going to put this author's name up because when I read this quote, I I read this author all the time. He's one of my favorite authors. And when I read this quote, I laughed to myself because I said most people will agree with it. I'm not going to put the author's name up there because I don't agree with it. And here's what the quote says. We may need to fill in some potholes or clear away some unwelcome debris so that the grace God has in store for us during each season of our lives will be able to stream unhindered into our hearts. At first glance, that sounds pretty interesting. It's saying, God, we need to clear away some debris so the grace of God can come into my life. But we, that, that's, that's, that's bad theology because I can't clear away debris so grace can come into my life because I need the grace to already be in my life so I can clear out the debris in the first place. We cannot live like we need to make room for God and then he'll show up because without God, I can't make room for him. Who can? Raise your hand. Who can make room for God? Who can make God-sized room in their life without God? Who can say yes to Jesus without the Holy Spirit already saving you? Who can say, I want more of you, without the Spirit crying out in you, I want more of you? Who can clear away debris? Who can fill potholes in their own life? Who can, who can not be like this song without God? We need God to be here so that we can prepare for his coming. I'm going to say that again. We need God to be here so that he can help us prepare for his coming. Is this a mystery? Yes, it is. If you want to figure everything out and you want everything to be understandable, have fun with the boring existence that that will create. This is a mystery. God shows up so that he can prepare us for his return. This is what the Holy Spirit is. This is why Paul says the Holy Spirit is a guarantee or a down payment of a harvest yet to come. God has shown up to prepare you for his showing up. This is why in Revelation 4, God says, I stand at the door and... But if Jesus didn't go through the locked doors in John 20 without knocking, he would never be there to answer the door for his own self when he knocks in Revelation 4. If Jesus only ever stood on the outside and knocked, no one would ever open because we need him to have the unction to want to open. So what does he do? He goes through the door to be in there with you so that when he knocks on the door, he says, hey, that's me knocking. And you're like, what, what? But that's how his grace operates. He's in your life to prepare you for the return of his life into your life. That's what he does. He's in the manger because he's already on the cross, because he's already in the empty tomb, because he's already returned, getting us ready for those things. I'm just nerding out on that right now. But you can't take a step without him. People have said to me my whole life, you need to get rid of that so that God has room in your life. I can't lift it. I need God in my life to get me ready so that God can be in my life. I need God in the room because I'll be too afraid to knock on the door, even if it's him knocking. I need God in my room to say that's me knocking on the door of your room. We need streams in the desert. The desert cannot produce its own streams. It needs to rain on it. We need the sun to spill over the shadow of death. You can't make it any lighter out until the sun comes out first. We, he is, 
the author and the finisher of our he is the author and the say it he is the and the your faith didn't come from you and it will not be perfected by you god gave it to you we mess it up and he will fix it in the end he's the and the the only thing we decide in between is if we're going to get sanctified through the refining fire of our obedience or through the fuller soap of our disobedience. We can choose what path we take to sanctification, but his decision to sanctify is always going to win out in your life. And you better tell somebody I said that because somebody who's not here needs to hear that because they've heard the opposite in places like this. They've heard until you get it together, God has no room in your life. And we need to tell them a better word, Salem. We need to tell him that by the time I said yes to him, I realized he was already at work in my life way before I ever even knew to say yes. Because there's nothing good in me that would have said yes without him. Oh my gosh. No, I'm not letting you off the hook, Salem. That is good news. This is good news that he won't demand something from you until he's already in your life to lift it his own self. He won't ask you to follow him if he's not giving you the grace to do it already. And when you don't follow him, the fuller soap. What is the fuller soap? It's when you ever, you ever, anybody have children? You ever get a stain in like, I don't know, just random example, a beautiful Christmas tablecloth? It wasn't Sophia, actually. It was when me and my dad were playing a board game, I spilled. But I said it was Sophia because it makes sense. <laughs> I do my best, okay? Whatever. There's a little scapegoat just running around the house. She's adorable. She's cute. I love her to pieces. I give her candy. She's like, yeah, I guess I spilled. I spilled. <laughs> Fuller's soap is, what is when, you're, when you use soap and you're trying to get a stain with a cloth out of a cloth. And you're scraping and twisting and wringing and, and trying to get the stain out. That is what happens to us when we resist God. When we resist God like Zechariah did when he didn't believe Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, telling him he's going to have a son, and he's like, can I have a sign? And Gabriel's super offended. He's like, all right, Mariah, I guess I'm not a sign enough for you right now. <laughs> and so he's, he's punished by not being able to speak. That is the fuller soap. God is refining him through his disobedience. Mary obeys and she goes through the refining fire of obedience, the tough, hot, fiery trials that come upon you when you're doing it the right way, when you're not getting the last word. Can you even imagine, Jeff? I can't. I literally can't imagine not getting the last word. I've tried to imagine it. I can't. I just tried twice. Can't do it. Man, I just can't. It's dangerous. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll talk. It's dangerous to try to get the last word. You got to say the one thing and then duck. How do you think I really hurt my foot? Running. <laughs> fleeing. I should say fleeing. We're going to, what happened? <laughs> Getting it right is difficult because you have to deny yourself, and that's a refining fire. If you do that, you'll be sanctified. If you resist him, the resistance is the fuller soap squeezing the stains of your own resistance out of your life. You're going to be sanctified because he's the author and the we just decide how he finishes. Our life is deciding what God needs to do to sanctify us.
So, John and Steph, you guys can come up here. There's a story I want to tell as we come to the table. What is waiting? What do we get when we get Jesus? So, Bishop Q will be here next week. And I'm stealing this story from him. And, John, it will sound so much better if you're playing. I'm going to stall until... By the way, that is a one. You look great. You look great today, man. You came for church today. You did. Let me dust the seat off for you here, sir. You look wonderful today. Yes. Nice to meet you. It's an honor, Reverend. It's an honor. Minister of Music. Bishop Q told the story. And Bishop Q, if you're watching this, I'm stealing it, so don't tell it next week. And I'm not going to tell you that I told it because I want to see if you actually listen to me when I preach. He told the story before he brought his church to the table last week. And it's such a beautiful story. And it's a story about a father who is an art lover. He loves the Van Goghs. He loves the Rembrandts. And so he has a son. And he raises his son and teaches him how to critique, find, and enjoy paintings expensive ones, rare ones. And so this child grew up to be an expert in, not, in, in finding artists known, seeking out paintings and pieces that are there that no one knew were there, and also finding artists that are as good as the world-renowned ones and bringing them to fame. The son decided he needed to travel more, and so he joins the army, and he travels. And one day, he, he's, he's not in any aggressive part of the military, and one day there's, there is a bombing where he was, and he's killed. The son is killed. And the father is just devastated, lost his son. A few years later, a soldier shows up at the father's house and says, I just want you to know, I'm one of the people your son saved that day. And I wanted to introduce myself to you, and I wanted you to know that your son's death was not in vain. And I also wanted you to know that I did something a little embarrassing. I know your son loves to paint, and he likes paintings. And he said, I'm terrible at painting, but I remember looking up while I was laying on the floor, seeing your son's hand reach through the fire to grab me, and I painted a picture of it for you. It was my best attempt to paint for you what I saw when I knew I was going to be saved by your son. And the, the father who, again, is obsessed with Rembrandts and Van Gogh sees this amateur painting and just pushes everything off the mantle and says, we're putting this front and center. This is my favorite painting of all. And for years, it brought healing to the family. Every time they were gripped by the despair, they saw that painting and said, oh, yeah, he did an amazing thing. Well, one day the father dies. And before he died, he wrote a specific instruction in his will. All the paintings that they've ever accumulated are to be auctioned off. And they're to have the auction at the house in front of that painting. And people with tons of money show up. And they're ready to get all the finest pieces of art. And the auctioneer stands up and says, before we start the auction, we're going to auction this picture first. And everyone's like, I get it's sentimental, but, you know, it's an amateur painting at best. And the auctioneer says, 
Do I have $100? There's paintings in this room that will go for millions. Do I, do I have $100? And no one. Do I have $50? No one. Finally, a next-door neighbor, embarrassed for the family, says, you know what? I knew the kid. He was a good kid. I'll buy it for $10. So the auctioneer says, sold. Going once, going twice. Sold. And then he looks at everybody and says, the auction is over. And everybody's like, what about the other paintings? And he said, the owner of these paintings said, whoever buys the sun gets everything. Whoever has the sun has everything. What are you waiting for? On your seat right now in front of you is Jesus. Let's stand to our feet together. Hold up that little cup. Everyone take the cup in your hands. An amateur painting at best. Think about how you're going to feel. Just try to imagine how you're going to feel when you see Jesus actually standing in front of you. Holes in the hands, stripes on the back, marks on the forehead. And he shows you his true self. And in his true self, you see your true self. Think of how priceless that moment is going to be. And then Jesus says, you don't realize, church, for the last 2,000 years, I've been showing you this amateur painting. This little painting that always goes first before the second coming. And so many of us have said, ah, it's just a symbol or it's just an analogy. And Jesus is saying, for the ones who can see the truth in this meal that I've given to you 2,000 years ago and told you to come often to the table, when you receive this little painting, you've received me. And when you have me, you have everything. So to those of you who hear me say right now, you have everything, here's what I want you to know. You have enough of God in your life to be prepared for the rest of God to be brought to your life. You have enough of God in your life to prepare you for the rest of God that will come into your life when he appears, when he reveals himself to you finally in the end, but every single day starting today. You have enough in you to be sanctified and ready for the next return of Christ into your life. Lord Jesus, we stand in this Advent moment still in a pandemic, still wondering what we're even waiting for regarding this virus, kind of still splintered from each other, people at home, people here, events happening, events canceling, concern, frustration, anger. And in the midst of it, you offer us this little cup of grape juice and bread. And in it is you. And it's always been you, and it's always been you, and it always will be you. This meal is what we need to get reshaped for the rest of your return into our life. God, I am thankful that I don't have as much as you as I will have one day. I'm thankful that every day of my life there will be more of you to have. But I also haven't shown as much of you to my friends and family and those around me as I could. And so we pray, Father God, first of all, that you would forgive us 
for coming to this table in an unworthy manner, for despising it, for not seeing the value in it, for being those people who are looking for something impressive and missing you because, as always, you love to show up in the mustard seeds, not in the mountains. Your mustard seed revelation moves mountains. Thank you for showing up in an unimpressive meal. Thank you for showing up in a meal that everybody on earth can afford. Thank you for showing up in a meal that we can all find in our home. Thank you for showing up in a meal that is easily digestible and easy to hand out and easy to take even in a social distance way. Thank you for not showing up in a way that would take too much time, effort, and money to be able to have you. Thank you for being humble. Thank you for your poverty. Thank you for being small enough to fit into our life. Thank you that on the night you were betrayed, instead of getting angry, you said, I'm going to be broken for you. Thank you that on the night you were pierced, you said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is going to forgive you for what you're doing, not condemn you forever for what you're doing, but raise you up at the last day in spite of it. Thank you that you heal our enemies and make them friends. Thank you that we were enemies and you've made us friends. Thank you that you're going to give us the ability to minister the gospel and not get entangled in the secular pursuits of the day or the arguments or the debates. But thank you for the lives you've given us. And I pray that we would be good stewards of them and offer them to you and love our neighbor as ourselves with everything we have. And that we wouldn't be waiting under some idealized mistletoe for something good to show up, but we will follow you into the dark darkness, into the wilderness, into the barn, into the cross, into the tomb. And we will find you in those places and bring people to those places and show them that Salem Tabernacle is God's living peace on the move. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would descend on this bread and this cup and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him, and sanctify us also that we may be the way where there is no way for somebody else this week. That we would be food for the journey. That we would love our neighbor as ourself. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Would you receive them in faith and nourish them in your hearts with me this morning? Would everybody just do me a favor? Would you put your hand on your head for a moment and say, Lord, I'll let you finish chewing. Say, Lord, please be in my mind. Put your hand here and say, Lord, please be in my heart. Put your hands on your shoulders and say, Lord, be all over my life. Do you agree with what you just did? You just did the sign of the cross. Be in my mind. Be in my heart be all over my body. Redeem all of me, mind, heart, soul, and strength. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.